0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I plan to cover 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. This will be an introduction to the charismatic guest. Paul is dealing with another church problem. In our previous chapter, chapter 11, Paul dealt with the problem of contentious brothers who were coming in requiring head coverings, and Paul had to deal with the head covering issues saying that, look, women have got their hair to cover the head, so let's don't cause an uproar over this by requiring cloth head coverings. At least that's my interpretation of it. And then at the end of chapter 11, Paul talks about abuses in the Lord's Supper, and now he's going to be talking about abuses of spiritual gifts. So he's talking about church matters, how to meet together as brothers and sisters. So we start now with verses with verse 1 in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians. Now concerning what comes from the Spirit, brothers, I do not want you to be unaware. The now there just means, now that i finished with the last issue, now I'm going to the next issue. Now that I've finished with the problems of the Lord's Supper, now I'm going to talk to you about spiritual gifts. Now, this translation, in my opinion, is pretty funky. Holman Christian Study Bible, now considering, concerning what comes from the Spirit, the NIV has spiritual gifts. That's what everybody calls it, so why they have to translate it that way? I don't know. Well, maybe this is why, because gifts is not actually in the original Greek, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out. However, as John Gill points out, the word gifts is rightly supplied by the translators. I suppose that's because of the context. I mean, after all, the whole rest of the chapter is about spiritual gifts. So that's what Paul's talking about here. I don't like this translation, even though it's a little bit more literal. Some people said that since gifts is not in there in the original Greek, that Paul could be Talking about doctrines. Now concerning doctrines that come from the Spirit brothers. Well, he's not talking about doctrines, he's talking about spiritual gifts in chapter twelve. John Gill suggests this. Now concerning eating and drinking, meat, eating meat and drinking wine, because he's been talking about that since chapter eight. And, but, but chapter twelve is about spiritual gifts. Adam Clark says it's now concerning spiritual men, brothers. I don't want you to be unaware. In other words, let me tell you how you can be spiritual. Well, that's nice, but that's not what he was talking about. In my humble opinion, he's talking about gifts of the spirit. Now, when Paul says, now, concerning what comes from the Spirit, he's going point by point from issues that have been brought up in the lost letter that was previously written to him by the Corinthians, lost to us, not lost to Paul. For example, in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, he says, now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have a wife. 1 Corinthians 8, 1, about gut food offered to idols. This is what I say about that. We all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. 1 Corinthians 16, 1, now, about the collection for the saints the poor, the poor province Jerusalem collection for the poor, and so he gives instruction about that. So he's going point by point through 1 Corinthians answering that lost letter, as well as oral reports from Chloe's household. Now it's interesting, Paul tells them, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant. Ignorant about what? About their boast of knowledge. Remember they were so enamored of Greek philosophy and rhetoric? So they knew a lot of stuff. And they also, so that was natural knowledge. They also had a lot of spiritual knowledge. They had spiritual gifts, prophecies from God, from the Holy Spirit. Isn't it ironic that people who had all that natural wisdom and had all that spiritual wisdom, they could give prophecies and words of wisdom and words of knowledge, but they were ignorant on how to administer the gifts, which just goes to show that all the knowledge that we have is partial. We don't know anything complete. As Francis Schaeffer used to say, we know true truth, but we don't know all truth. First Corinthians 12:2. Paul continues, you know that when you were pagans, you used to be led off to the idols that could not speak. Now, this is a strange verse, in my opinion. Let's see why Paul put it in here. He's trying to make a contrast. When you were a pagan, you were led off, he doesn't say by whom, but we can assume it's the devil. (laughs) When you were pagans, you were led off by the devil to idols. And Paul wants to contrast that because now he's saying you're to be led by the Holy Spirit. And I think there's a more of a contrast. He's going to contrast these idols, these pagan idols that could not speak, but you're being led by the Holy Spirit who can speak. And the speaking he's referring to are the so-called speaking gifts, tongues, prophecies, words of wisdom, words of knowledge. The Holy Spirit can speak through his people. The pagan idols cannot speak. And so he's basically giving a background to spiritual gifts here. And he's not speaking against spiritual gifts. He's just going to speak against the abuse of spiritual gifts. Now he says... When he Paul says when you were pagans, he's not referring to every last single member of the Corinthian church because not all of them were pagans, not all of them were Gentiles. Some of them were Jews, and Jews of course were not pagans. Crispus, the synagogue leader in Acts 18, was saved. He was Jewish. Now when Paul says the idols could not speak, whenever you see that in the Scripture, a dumb idol, a mute idol, he's dumb not only in the sense that he can't speak, but he's also dumb in the sense that he's unintelligent. But Paul is saying that to put them down, comparing them to the God who can speak, as Jameson Fawcett Brown says. In verse 12, 3, the second part of the verse, we'll get there in just a minute, Paul says, no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, so he's emphasizing the fact that Christians can speak, but dumb idols can't. This proves that a dumb idol is nothing, as Adam Clark says. The God or demon they represented, they couldn't speak either. But God can speak, and he speaks through his people, through tongues, prophecies, Words of wisdom and words of knowledge. We go to verse 3, chapter 12, 1 Corinthians. Therefore, I am informing you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is also a puzzling verse. I'm going to give you some options that commentators have given. Now, remember, these commentators don't have practical experience of the spiritual gifts. They were writing in the time, the Protest- after the Protestant Reformation when spiritual gifts had died out amongst most especially amongst learned commentator types. And so they're basically like the guy that's the blind guy that's feeling the back of an elephant, feels the tail, feels the rear leg, and he describes the, the elephant in a preposterous way because he only has part of the picture because he's blind. Well that's what a lot of people, a lot of modern commentators talking about spiritual gifts, they remind me of that blind man. They don't know what they're talking about half the time. But let me give you some of these options. What does Paul mean when he says that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed? Well, here's option number one. It, it could be referred to a Christian speaking in a natural language can say Jesus is cursed. He can say Jesus is the Lord, but he can't say it in a natural language. And, of course, he would never do that. In contrast to the mute idols, the mute idols can't, pray, can't give praise to their gods. And Christians can speak To their Lord and say, Jesus is Lord. So the contrast is between the mute idols who can't say Satan is God, but the Christians can say, Jesus is Lord. That's very nice, but then why would Paul even bring up the possibility that a Christian speaking by the Spirit of God would say Jesus is cursed? That makes no sense at all. It would never even occur to him to say that. It doesn't fit the context. So this option rests on the Christian's natural ability to speak praise, speak, and say Jesus is Lord versus the idol's inability to speak to say Satan is Lord. I do not believe that fits the context at all. Why would Paul be talking about that when the whole context of the chapter is about spiritual gifts? So let's scratch that one off. Let's look at another option. This is from Adam Clark, who's quoting the famous commentator Lightfoot, the Westminster Divine Lightfoot. These people who were saying Jesus is cursed, were Jewish exorcists who strolled about pretending to do miracles by the Holy Spirit, and yet cursed Jesus as they did so. And so Paul is saying, look, you need to be careful. There are people going around doing this, and don't be swayed by any miracles they're claiming. The fact that they're openly cursing God proves that the exorcists are not from God, so you need to stay away from the exorcists. Now, I will say that Lightfoot and Clark's solution here does make sense internally. It's coherent. Per se, it makes sense. In and of itself, it makes sense. But you fit it with the context. What has it got to do with the context? The whole rest of the chapter is about spiritual gifts. So I don't like that option either. So let me give you my option. Now, unfortunately, this is my option. I came up with this on my own, I think. At least I don't remember if I got it from anywhere else. I certainly didn't get it by reading commentators. So this is what I think Paul is talking about. He's referring to speaking in tongues. He says, therefore, I'm you, informing you that no one speaking in tongues by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. Now, why would Paul say that? Because it could very well be that a person speaking in tongues, since he doesn't know what he's saying, he can't interpret it through his natural mind, he might think, ooh, what if I'm cursing God while I'm speaking in tongues? And Jesus is trying to assure the guy, hey, no, you're speaking in tongues, you're praying in the Spirit, You're not saying Jesus is cursed. What you're saying is Jesus is Lord because you're praying by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, that's what you're doing. You're saying Jesus is Lord, not Jesus is cursed. Okay, well, that makes sense, I think, in my opinion. But now another question arises. Well, how would the speaker know he was not speaking in a demonic tongue? Well, there's a simple answer to that. No one who prays to God, the first person of the Trinity, in the name of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is going to have the devil answer that prayer with a a demonic tongue. That's nonsense. I remember one time when I was investigating the possibility of speaking in tongues. I was reading literature, studying things, and I went to bed one night. I was at college, and I had a dream. I dreamed I was way up on top of a high mountain, and there was nothing but darkness and abyss below, and I... I teetered off the mountain, fell into the abyss, and as I was falling, my hands went around, went to my neck, and all of a sudden, out of my mouth came this eerie, horrible-sounding foreign language, demonic tongues, and I couldn't stop the demonic tongues, and I was getting closer and closer to the bottom of the abyss, and so I just jumped up out of my bed and yelled, Jesus, as loud as I could. I might have said Jesus before I jumped up, I don't remember, but but the point was, I was awake, and I was okay, and I I was sweating, it scared the blazes out of me. And I realize, hey, this is the devil trying to scare me out of speaking in tongues by showing me that he can do it too, and that maybe you better be careful because you do you want to do demonic tongues? And I answered that this way, if I'm praying to God in the name of Jesus, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the devil hasn't got a ding dong damnable thing to say about that and I'm not going to be speaking in demonic tongues. So I think that's what Paul's doing, he's trying to reassure the Corinthians. They've obviously gotten out of order. There were people going around speaking all in tongues all at once, disrupting the church service and so forth. And people might have started getting the idea, oh, hey, maybe there's some demonic activity behind this. And Paul's trying to assure them, no, there's not. It's not demonic. It's 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 the Holy Spirit. Now, he goes on to his main point here in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 12. Now, there are different gifts but the same Spirit. The same Spirit is emphasizing unity to those fractured Corinthians. Now, it's interesting in the next three verses, 4, 5, and 6, we got the three persons of the Trinity mentioned. Here we have the Holy Spirit in verse 4. In verse 5, we have the Son mentioned. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. There's a second person of the Trinity. Then we go to verse 6, and there are different activities, but the same God. There's the first person of the Trinity activates each gift in each person. That's pretty cool. Trinitarian triplet, if you will. And it could be that Paul is trying to emphasize that subtly. Just as the Trinity is diverse and yet one, so is the body of Christ. The body of Christ is diverse as to spiritual gifts that are manifested, but it is one as to unity in Christ. That's the NIV Study Bible's idea. I think that's a good one. We go to verses 5 and 6, 1 Corinthians 12. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God activates each gift in each person. Now ministries, the NIV Study Bible says, the Greek that is translated by ministries in its various forms is used to indicate service to the christian community the niv in fact translates it as service so, such as serving tables as the niv study bible suggests now if that's so then the emphasis there is on non-charismatic non-supernatural type services or gifts to the body ministries to the body but the same lord but then he goes into verse six there are different activities that greek word well let me back up a minute that same word for ministries is the same words that's used later for a deacon. The NIV Study Bible says office of deacon, but that, it just means deacon. I don't think there's a, any place in the New Testament where you can find that word office. It's so institutional. It just means server, one who serves. Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul and Timothy slaves with Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. not the office of deacons, but the deacons, overseers and deacons. It's the same word. The Greek word is I forgot the exact word, it's a form of diac, and has D-I-A-C in it, from which we get the word deacons. So, that word, different ministries, refers to natural-type, serving-type ministries, and a paradigm example would be serving tables. And there are different activities. Now, activities, the NIV Study Bible says, that Greek word indicates power and in operation. And so, now he's talking about charismatic gifts. As the NIV Study Bible says, these are spiritual gifts which produce results that are obvious. So, again, I think this, that Paul is mentioning both supernatural and natural gifts to the body here in these two verses. We go to verse 7, 1 Corinthians 12. A demonstration of the Spirit is given to each person to produce what is beneficial. Now, demonstration, of course, means it's obvious. So these spirit, charismatic spiritual gifts, are, are, you can see them on the spot, like, like a healing or a miracle or something like that, or an instantaneous healing, at least, or a prophecy, now, these gifts or these demonstrations of the Spirit, these gifts are given. It's a matter of grace. It's not a matter of merit or worth. I know people who have exercised the gift of healing. So that were absolutely the most reprehensible, unsanctified people you ever saw. It's a gift. It's not a reward for how good you are. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, Peter says the same thing. Based on the gift... Each one has received. Use it to serve others. It's not for yourself. The gift is not to serve yourself. It's to serve others. As good managers of the varied grace of God. Notice varied grace of God. There's different gifts. All kinds of different gifts. And I think, by the way, that the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 are not an exclusive list. I believe there's all kinds of different ways that you can serve the body of Christ. People come up with remarkable, innovative ways of getting the gospel out or serving the body of Christ. If anyone speaks... Peter continues, it should be as one who speaks God's words. There's a charismatic stuff, unless it's talking about teacher, but I don't believe it is. I think it's talking about prophecies and such. If anyone serves, it should be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ and everything to him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Now, when Paul says a demonstration of the spirit is given to each person, he assumes, of course, it's each person in the body of Christ, not every person in the world, because obviously they don't have the Holy Spirit, so they don't have any gifts of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. The typical translation of that is a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. I prefer those translations better. A message of wisdom, I guess that's all right, but it's just not what I'm used to. Now, what's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Knowledge is when you, don't know a fa- it's when you do know a fact, and wisdom is you know the facts, and you know how to apply those facts and how to deal with them. And so Paul kind of runs those two together, I think. Now, some people, like Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown do something that I don't think is right. They say that knowledge refers to an old revelation, and wisdom refers to a new revelation. Let me give you the quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Knowledge is, quote, ready utterance supernaturally imparted of truths already revealed, and that it is distinguished from the word of wisdom, which is related to new revelation. And so then Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown go on to distinguish the two types. Of the the two things, knowledge and wisdom, by saying that knowledge comes from teachers because it's stuff that's already been revealed in the Scripture, and so the teachers teach with knowledge, but wisdom comes from prophets because it's new stuff that's been revealed. And when I say new, I don't mean contradicting the Bible. I mean new, new in the sense that it's stuff that the church hadn't dealt with before. So there you have a contrast between teaching and prophecy. And again, this comes... I'm going to mention this again later on. I don't think so. I think both of these spiritual gifts are supernatural. It's just a matter of, for example, you might have a word of knowledge that John Doe is a false prophet, a false teacher. You need to deal with him. Word of wisdom might be, well, you all know that you got somebody sleeping with their stepmother. Now, here's a word of wisdom from God. Exercise church discipline on him. (laughs) So You know, that's the difference, in my opinion, between knowledge and wisdom. Now... Some people just take this as not referring to supernatural charismatic gifts at all, but the natural gift of teaching. I, sh- I say natural. I mean, it's it's not it's stuff you have to study and prepare for. It doesn't come upon you instantaneously and spontaneously in the meeting. A teaching, in other words. And Adam Clark is one of these people. He says that the word there, message, should be doctrine. To one is given a doctrine of wisdom, a teaching, in other words. Well, I think Clark is wrong because the context here is not teaching; it's supernatural gifts. Unfortunately, from my point of view, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown agrees with Clark. He says wisdom and knowledge are gifts of the intellect, as opposed to all the other gifts mentioned, which are gifts of the spirit, charismatic gifts. Charisma means gift. All right, so we go to 1 Corinthians 12.9. Paul is talking about gifts that are given, and he says gifts are given, first 12.9, to another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. So some people are given faith by the same spirit. Now the problem with the gift of faith is that everybody's got faith so why is somebody said to have a special gift of faith? Well it's obviously not saving faith as the NIV Study Bible and John Gill point out. It can't mean that. All Christians have that. The NIV Study Bible says faith to meet a specific need in the body of Christ and I think they probably be right about that. Jameson Foster Brown says faith to do miracles and I think that's probably right too because there might be a specific miracle that's needed to be done in the body of Christ. I know that Some people are really good at praying for healing. I like to pray for people's business, their work situations, vocational situations, I guess, because I used to be a business professor. I don't know why, but I'll, I'll get on that in a minute. I always pray for that. I like hearing about people's business problems and praying for that. So maybe I got more faith to pray for that than I do for somebody that's sick or somebody that's got a relationship problem or whatever. But at any rate, faith by the same Spirit, so it shows that our faith to believe something, whatever it is, is a gift by the Holy Spirit. So if you have, you know, how about those passages where somebody says, Jesus, help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. You need a special gift of the Holy Spirit to help you believe more. There's nothing wrong with praying for more belief. You don't just work it up in yourself by citing faith formulas and going to Kenneth Copeland meetings and listen to Kenneth Copeland tapes. That's not how you do it. What you do is you ask the Holy Spirit to give you more faith because you need it. Gifts of healing by the one spirit. Again, that one spirit, the same spirit and one spirit. Paul is emphasizing unity to the fractured Corinthians. And the gift of healing is by the it's gifts of healings, plural in the Greek. And then the Bible says that maybe that plural may indicate different kinds of illnesses. I wouldn't doubt that, actually. For example, in Matthew 10, 1, we read this. Summoning his 12 disciples, he, Jesus, gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. And the KGV says all manner of disease and sickness. In other words, every kind of disease. There's all kind of different diseases. Maybe, there needs to be, maybe you need to have a special manifestation of the Spirit to heal a certain kind of sickness, especially when they get to be real serious type sicknesses. Not everybody can pray to see cancer delivered. I think there's another thing, too. Because there are diversities of gifts, some people are real good at praying for healing, especially serious healings. That's why, if I, you know, if me or my family members ever get really, really sick with something, I go look, I'll go find somebody that's really good that has a gift of healing because it's a special gift. We can all pray for healing. The elders of a church have said in James to pray for healing. We everybody prays for healing all the time, but somebody's got a special gift of it. That's who you want. Somebody who's just good at it because of the Spirit. He's been gifted. In other words. Faith through miracles. Jameson Fawcett Brown says that that's what the faith refers to. He quotes 1 Corinthians 13, 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, that's extra, extra faith there. That's not just believing in salvation. That's faith to move a mountain. Of course, that's Hebrew. How probably God doesn't mean you go around believing in a mountain be moved. That's absurd. But it just means faith to do something that's impossible, but you still believe it anyway. Mark eleven twenty three. I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Faith is the, doubt is the opposite opposite of faith. No doubt means lots of faith. That of course is the faith message favorite verse. It's been abused and misused, but that doesn't mean we should not quote it because it's my verse too. James five fifteen. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore him to health. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That's why if you get sick, get the elders to pray. It's what the Bible says. We go to 1 Corinthians 12:10. To another, Paul says, is given the performing of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another different kinds of languages, that's tongues, to another interpretation of languages, interpretation of tongues. Now, the performing of miracles, the NIV Study Bible says literally that means deeds of power. Miracles are often, that word power is often associated with miracles in the Greek. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. Now, there's two different kinds of prophecy. Actually, if you want to really be technical about it, there's three ways that prophecy is used. First is the old-fashioned prediction use that we all think of first. Let me give you the example of Agabus. Agabus shows up twice in Acts, once before the three missionary journeys of Paul and once afterwards. Before, in Acts 11, verse 27 through 28, we read this. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the time of Claudius. There, Agabus, straight out predicts something that's going to happen. Famine's coming. Prediction. Use of prophecy. Acts 21, 10-11. While we were staying there many days, I believe that was Caesarea, if I remember correctly, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Came from Jerusalem, actually. And came. he came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet, and friend, and... Feet and hands, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into Gentile hands, which, of course, is exactly what happened. So, Agabus was a predicting prophet. Second use of prophecy, a revelation of God's will in a given situation, as the NIV Study Bible points out in Acts 13 1 through 2. In the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers and some are listed. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, the the Cyrenian, Manan, a close friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. So those five guys were ministering to the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas, and Saul for the work. Well, how did the Holy Spirit say it? Probably through the prophets. Whichever one of those five people were prophets, whichever ones of those five people were prophets, the Holy Spirit said through those prophets, let's start out on the first missionary journey, guys. That's a point that's often overlooked because people don't, know what prophecy is. Non-charismatics just completely ignore it. But when Paul set out on his first missionary journey to evangelize and set up churches, he was set out at the instigation of, the, of a prophet or of prophets. Third use of prophecy, edification, exhortation, and comfort, which has nothing to do with prediction. has nothing to do with revelation of God's will. It's just to comfort people. First Corinthians 14.3, but the person who prophesies speaks to people for edification, encouragement, and consolation. This would usually be a prophecy that would appeal to something in the in the person's life history that the prophet doesn't know about and says, okay, this is what it is. I remember one time when I was in college, a, a man who's going on to be with the Lord prophesied over me, and he says, you're like somebody carrying a vessel of water and you're sloshing the water all over the place. He said, you need to get the water in the vessel so you can pour it into people's mouths so you can get your teaching together. That's basically what he's saying. And that really was the truth because my mind tends to be interested in every doggone thing in the world, and I was all over the place, running here and there, trying to learn this, learn that, and he was saying, get your, get yourself focused, my friend. That prophecy did me a lot of good, lots of good. It changed the way I proceeded in my life, so that's edification, exhortation, and comfort. Now, this prophecy is obviously not the same thing as the gift of teaching. I've got this line in my notes italicized. I've got notes all the way from Genesis 1, 1 to the last verse in Revelation 22 took me over 10 years to do them, and not once have I italicized a whole lot of my notes except right here. This is absolutely, prophecy is absolutely not the same thing as the gift of teaching. Now, why am I so emphatic about this? It's because everybody says this, all these old commentators. I even talked to a PhD in theology at a conference one time, and he kept saying, prophecy is teaching, prophecy is teaching. I said, I'm not going to mention his name. Let's say his name was Sam. I said, Sam. Come on now, I mean, if prophecy is teaching, why would Paul say in First Corinthians twelve twenty-eight, "And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers"? Paul obviously distinguishes the two gifts. This is a slam dunk, and I—I I didn't say it, but I'm thinking, you know, a Ph.D. in theology ought to know this. Did he give me an answer? Well, of course, he didn't give me an answer because there's no answer. That's the problem when things are not challenged; they go along for centuries, and nobody challenges them. And then pretty soon, everybody cites it like it's the truth, and it obviously contradicts the scripture. So teaching is not the same thing as prophecy. Now they both, you know, you could say they both edify and encourage and comfort. That's true. But teaching means you have to sit down. You've got to figure out what the pronouns refer to, what the context is. Why did Paul say this? What's the cultural background? Now, all the stuff that teachers have to do, prophets don't do that. They come to the meeting. They're not thinking about what they're going to say. And all of a sudden God reveals to them, oh, there's something I need to say here. It's more spontaneous, more direct, if you will. Another gift that Paul mentions in verse 10 is the gift of distinguishing between spirits. The discernment of spirits, I think, other translations have. Now, there's some options as to what this means. It could be, as the NIV Study Bible and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say, it's the gift of distinguishing between true and false prophecies. And I think that's what it is. Because you've got to judge prophecies. That's the trouble with so many charismatics. They'll sit there and, oh, isn't that prophecy isn't that wonderful? prophecy. stupid. Or it's wrong. It's just, you, know, you never hear about distinguishing discernment of spirit. You always hear about the prophecies. And, and it's given charismatic movement a very bad name. And it's given the gift of prophecy a very bad name. You have to distinguish true and false prophecies. I, prophecies, I have a friend of mine who is, who is one of his major gifts is prophecy. And I was talking about a particular prophet he had mentioned that had predicted that there was going to be a red wave in the last election. That means the Republicans were going to sweep the Democrats in the midterm elections, and exactly the opposite happened. It was a blue wave. The Republicans lost control of the House, and I was mentioning this, and my prophet friend said, "Why don't prophets just admit they're wrong when they're wrong?" <laughs> yeah, here, here. well, that's one way you can discern is whether the, if it's a prediction prophecy whether it comes true or not, but sometimes it might not be a prediction. It's hard to know whether the prophecy is true or not, and you need somebody that can supernaturally judge the other prophets in chapter fourteen. And I think it says, let one prophesy and let the others judge it. I think it's referring to the other prophets who have the gift of discernment. Let them judge the first prophets to make sure that it's right so that you don't have just one guy prophesying a bunch of stuff. You've got sort of a collegial body of prophets who can check each other, keep the flesh out. So I think that's the distinguishing the distinguishing that is that the NIV Study Bible is talking about in Jameson Foster, and Brown between true and false prophecies. It could be another option is that it's not discussing whether something's true or false, whether it's just some flesh or mistake, but whether somebody's actually demonic or not, whether somebody is prophesying from the devil, that ought to be a little easier to distinguish. Now, whatever it means, this gift doesn't operate in modern-day non-charismatic churches. Why? Because there aren't any supernatural activities requiring the distinguishing from true and false. Distinguishing true from false doesn't exist because there's no charismatic gifts. Woo, isn't that easy? Just chop it out and just get rid of it. That's why Paul said despise not prophesying because there's all kind of problems with it. So let's just heck with it, do away with it. And I'm sure that Paul, was when he said that, and I forgot the verse, but the reason he said despise not prophesying is because people were getting so fed up with false prophecies they were saying, I'm tired of this, I'm tired of the chaos. Let's just get rid of it. And Paul says, no, don't get rid of it. We go to 1 Corinthians 12, 11. But one and the same Spirit is active in all these. And all these manifestations of the Spirit. And all these charismatic gifts. But one and the same Spirit is active in all these. All these different types of gifts. We got One and the same Spirit. And once again, Paul is emphasizing unity to the fractured Corinthians. And that same Spirit distrib- distrib- is distributing to each person as he wills. As he the Spirit wills. Now this verse is one of the most abused verses in the history of biblical interpretation. It's by non-charismatics who are telling me that everybody can't speak in tongues if they want to. They take the verse, these non-charismatics, all in good intentions. I don't mean that they're being evil about it. They're just wrong. They say that the Holy Spirit didn't give me the gift of tongues. He gave you the gift of tongues, but he didn't distribute me the gift of tongues. Therefore, I'm don't. i, I I'm not going to be able to speak in tongues. And of course, what that's used is a crutch so that you, don't, you can just quit searching, quit seeking, and quit trying to learn about it. I mean, you know, I had to. I had to. I already told you the story. I had to fight through a, dem, a, dr- a demonic dream, the devil trying to convince me that tongues was demonic. I had to fight through that in order to enjoy the gift of the Spirit. And as we see in 1 Corinthians 14, when we get there, speaking in tongues is a v- very useful tool. Well, this verse is used to talk people out of it, and I'm going to show you that that is wrong hermeneutically, wrong to say that. That, and this is how the wrong interpretation goes. God distributes some gifts to Charismatics, but he does the gift of tongues to charismatics, but he doesn't distribute the gift of tongues to non charismatics and I thought, well, yeah, I guess he loves charismatics more than he does non charismatics. Is that right? You really want to believe that? I mean, the result is is all charismatics who believe that speaking in tongues is for everybody who wants it, they all end up speaking in tongues. I say all I mean generally all ninety nine percent but then non charismatics who don't believe in speaking in tongues, and they say, well. God distributed the gifts to charismatics, but not to me. They all don't end up speaking in tongues. You know, that ought to make you stop and think, well, why is that? Maybe the mindset of the person investigating this issue might determine what the result is. All right, so let's interpret the verse properly. Well, first, first of all, let's take what I think is an erroneous interpretation of it. We assume that each gift is given to every person permanently, and he can't have another gift. So in a particular meeting, uh, Person who has the gift of miracles, he does miracles, nothing else. He doesn't speak in tongues. Person that speaks in tongues, doesn't prophesy. Person who distinguishes, uh, di- uh, distinguishes, has discernment of spirits. He doesn't discern. He only discerns spirits. He doesn't pray for healing and so forth. I do not believe that is what Paul means. He means in a particular meeting, a person will manifest a particular gift as is needed, and it might change from person to person and from week to week. Now, how can I prove that? Well, Paul tells the Corinthians to earnestly desire the gift of prophecy. In 1 Corinthians 14.1, he says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and above all that you may prophesy. Well, he wants all of them to prophesy? I thought, I thought that some people had one gift of the Spirit and some people had another gift of the Spirit. But he says, I want you all to prophesy. That seems contradictory to me. And what I think he means is prophesy at the proper time. The Spirit will distribute a gift of prophecy to somebody in a particular meeting. You prophesy then. If he doesn't distribute the gift of prophecy to you in a particular meeting, well, then don't prophesy. I'll give you another example. Paul told the Corinthians... Corinthians that he wished that they would all speak in tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, 5, I wish, quote, unquote, all of you. I wish, quote, all of you, unquote. I wish all of you spoke in other languages, but even more that you prophesy. Speaking other languages means in other tongues. Okay? How do you explain that? Paul says that he just wants the gifts to be, the Holy Spirit just wants some gifts to be distributed to one person and some to another, so some have tongues and some don't. Well, if some have tongues and some don't, how does that jive with 1 Corinthians 14, 5? I wish all of you spoke in other languages. So the answer to this is in each meeting, each person uses different gifts. I might do a gift of healing one meeting and a gift of prophecy the next meeting. we fluid. It makes a lot of sense to me. One little point before we leave this verse. The Holy Spirit is called a he in this verse. The Holy Spirit distributes to each person as he wills. Not it, he and boy, we need to get out of the habit of calling the Holy Spirit it. It's not a force. Not like in Star Wars, let me the force be with you. No, it's a he. He's personal. That's why you can have a personal relationship with Jesus, because the Holy Spirit spiritually is intertwined with your spirit, the non-corporeal part of your being, and so therefore you can communicate with the God who made the universe personally. You will note that I just did what I said I shouldn't do. I said, it's a he. I really should have said it's He's a he. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, we'll finish this audio up. For as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body... we will, I'm sorry, we're not going to finish it up. We've got several more verses to go. Verse 12, for as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. Now, Paul uses the human analogy here. A human being has one head, and he's got a bunch of parts to the rest of his body, but that is still one body. It's unified. So also, Christ is the same way. He has one head, and his members are the individual Christians. He has one body, but all those individual Christians are one with Christ. So Christ's body is individual Christians. Christ's body is the church, Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. And he put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church. So Jesus is head over the church. Verse 23, which is his body. So he he is head over the body. He is head over his church. Perfect analogy. Jesus and the church are one body, just like a human being is one body. Before we leave verse 12, let me give you a sort of an off-the-wall interpretation that Adam Clark suggests. I don't know if he actually believes this. He points out that the word Christ means anointed. And so you could read the verse this way. So for as the body is one and has many parts and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is the body anointed. In other words, so also is the church of Jesus Christ anointed by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. I don't believe it, but it is interesting. We go to verse 13, 1 Corinthians 12. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Once again, Paul is emphasizing the one there, the unity. One spirit, one body, one spirit. Again, he mentions because the Corinthians were divided and sliced up into factions, he's emphasizing the unity. As we go on with this, we'll see that some of the Spiritual gifts were stomping on other spiritual gifts, causing divisions in the body. We'll see that when we get to verse chapter 14. Paul's emphasizing the one. Now, baptized could mean in water. Some people say, a minority of people say it's water. I'm going to assume it's the spirit because that's the majority of you, and I think that's probably right. So we'll take that as if we were all baptized by one spirit in one body. Now, as soon as we say that, we've got a problem because there were some people back in the book of Acts. were not baptized in the spirit are we prepared to therefore say that they were not baptized into the body of christ for example the samaritans in acts eight they were believers it's easy to prove this they were believers who had not received the holy spirit yet and then the holy spirit came upon them and they were baptized in the holy spirit were they not baptized into the body of christ before they received the baptism of the holy spirit how about paul in acts nine he was not filled with the holy spirit when he first when he saw the lord on the road to damascus and got saved and called him lord and so forth Ananias came later, and f- he was filled with the Holy Spirit when he got his sight back. Before the filling of Paul's filling of the Holy Spirit, are we prepared to say that he was not baptized into the body into the body of Christ? I have a little trouble with that. What about the Ephesians 12? I'll call them in Acts 19. Paul says, "Oh, you've heard of the baptism of John, but have you you, you What do you know? Uh, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit yet?" And they said, "No, we've only heard of the baptism of John." So they got baptized in the Holy Spirit, spoke in tongues, prophesied. Are we willing to say that in that period of time before they were baptized in the Holy Spirit that they were not baptized into the body of Christ? I have trouble with that. Now, this is another gotcha verse that non-charismatics like to use on charismatics, and so I regret to inform you I'm perfectly prepared to defend myself from this charge. And this is what is said. We all had the baptism of the Holy Spirit when we are saved. There's no time lapse between regeneration and baptism of the Holy Spirit. It all happens at one point in time when we're saved. There's no subsequence, if I can use the theological term. There's no subsequence there. Because if you allow subsequence, that means the people who are not baptized in the Spirit are not baptized into the body of Christ. And are you willing to say that the the evangelical non-charismatic is not baptized into the body of Christ? You wouldn't say anything that reprehensible, would you? And that's how the argument goes. And at first, it sounds like a powerful argument. But I have two possible answers to it. I'm going to give you, I think, the the argument, the answer that's not the best answer, but it's a good answer. Because after all, charismatics have got the same problem as non-charismatics, because are we willing as charismatics to say that people who aren't baptized in the Holy Spirit aren't baptized in the body of Christ? We're not willing to say that. We're willing to say that they're saved, they have the Holy Spirit, they're born again, they're regenerated. But are we willing to say they're not baptized in the body of Christ? When this verse says that we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, that means all of us, non-charismatic evangelicals and evangelicals too. So we got a problem. Charismatics got a problem. Everybody's got a problem. How do we explain this? Well, here's one way you can explain it. Paul assumes that the normative experience is true for all. In other words, back then, people were saved, they were regenerated, and then they were baptized in the Spirit, just like in Acts 8 and Acts 9 and Acts 19, Acts 2. And so he was just speaking about the general rule. People are getting baptized by one Spirit. After they were regenerated, they're baptized in the body of Christ when they get baptized in the Spirit. I don't have any problem with that, actually. Paul assumes that the normative experience of regeneration, time gap, subsequence, baptism of the Holy Spirit is true for everybody. He assumes that every Christian will be regenerated and filled because they didn't have a charismatic controversy back then. They just did it. If there's any gap of time between the two, between regeneration and baptism of the Holy Spirit, it was insignificant especially when compared with the experience of the vast majority of Christians who got saved and got baptized in the spirit right thereafter, just like they got baptized in water shortly thereafter they got saved. He's speaking in generalities, not for rare specific cases. Another example of this, he tells us that nature tells us that long hair is a disgrace for men, you remember that discussion, 1 Corinthians eleven. Well he wasn't saying that in every single case man's hair is longer excuse me, shorter, that in every single case man's hair is shorter than every woman in existence, he's just saying in general that's true, he doesn't let the exception eat up the rule. All right, so I think that's a good answer to that, but I got an even better answer. Well, again, let me repeat the first answer is that we were all, he means all in general, were baptized in one spirit, and one body, so that when we get baptized in the Holy Spirit, we're baptized into the body of Christ, and that baptism of the Holy Spirit is subsequent to regeneration. But here's an even better answer let's take that all there as meaning all without distinction not all without exception. Now, it is amuses me that Calvinist reform type people love to make this distinction. For God desires that all be saved. Well, that all is all without distinction. He desires that Jews be saved and the Greeks be saved. And this argument is used all the time to get around the idea of universal atonement and everybody gets saved and all that you know, against universalism, too, for that matter. So reformers are very used to that type of distinction, that all means all without distinction, not all without exception. But when we come to this verse, you never hear reformers use that argument. But I'm going to use it because Paul, the context shows clearly to me that Paul is talking about all without distinction are baptized by one spirit into one body. Not all without exception. There are some people who hadn't, who hadn't gotten there yet because they hadn't gotten baptized in the spirit. But what he's talking about, he's not talking about that. He's talking about every group, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, all without distinction are in have been baptized in the body of Christ. And Again, that assumes they get when they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, subsequent to regeneration. Well, if you don't believe that, then if you believe that you're baptized when you are saved, then say, okay, fine, Jesus, I'm baptized when I got saved. Thank you for baptizing me in the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, then you're just acknowledging what happened in the past, and we have a difference of a little time gap. But now you acknowledge that you're baptized in the Spirit, now go out and do tongues and prophecy and miracles and so forth. I mean, there's a whole charismatic movement, the third wave movement, that doesn't even believe in the distinction between in subsequence, in the time gap between regeneration and baptism of the Holy Spirit. And yet they're going out and doing miracles. So, you know, you don't have to have that subsequence. But at any rate, like I say, whether you're charismatic or non-charismatic, there's a problem here. How do you handle those people in, in Acts 8 and Acts 9 and, and Acts 19? Were they not baptized in the body of Christ when they weren't baptized in the Holy Spirit? You could make the same argument about, you could make the argument that the baptized here is the baptism in water for we were all baptized in water and the Holy Spirit used that baptism in water to put us into one body. But the problem there is they got the same problem because people get saved and then they're not baptized in water yet. There's a gap of time between their and the body of Christ. For example, Cornelius. In Cornelius' house, they all got saved. The Holy Spirit fell on them and then Peter said, well, let's get them baptized now. So there was a gap of time between the salvation and the baptism. And we say they weren't baptized in the body of Christ until they got baptized in water. Are we to say that the thief on the cross was never baptized in the body of Christ because he was never baptized in water? You see what I'm saying here? It's a major league problem that most people don't point out. But I think I've handled that pretty good. And so I'm finished with this lesson in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 14. We will continue with the body metaphor and the unity in the body of Christ and how spiritual gifts must be exercised in a way that the body is unified as we continue starting with verse 14 in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.